22-5807, State of Tennessee et al. versus Department of Education et al. Oral argument, 15 minutes for appellants, 15 minutes to be shared by appellees. Mr. Peters for the appellants. Good morning, Your Honors. May it please the Court. David Peters, Matthew, United States of America. The District Court erred in several respects when it issued a preliminary injunction barring the Department of Education from implementing certain informational documents. Those documents merely set out at a high level of generality the Department's thinking on the question of whether, in light of the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock, Title IX prohibits discrimination based on sexual orientation and gender identity. The states lack standing to challenge the documents, the documents are not reviewable final agency action, and they certainly are not legislative rules subject to notice and comment rulemaking. The injunction should therefore be vacated. If I may, I'd like to start with what the documents do and critically what they don't do. The documents merely set out uh, the Department's understanding as of Title IX's requirements in the Supreme Court's decision in Bostock. They speak at a high level of generality as to what... Well, wait. How, how high is the level of generality? Because I, I understand that you're saying that in particular cases, maybe, I don't know, um, maybe sports teams that are segregated by biological sex would be allowed to continue, but... No blanket rule will be allowed under the government's policy, right? So if, if a state had a blanket rule that said you may not segregate sports teams by sex or bathrooms by sex, and that's the state's law, you would not allow that, right? So that seems not like a high level of generality. Yeah, it's important to what these documents say. So these documents don't address that question. Um, they don't address whether, uh, frankly, what constitutes prohibited sex discrimination based on gender identity or sexual orientation, and they certainly don't address whether any particular policy or practice would constitute prohibited discrimination. What about the fact sheet that has the specific examples in it? You know, the, the fact sheet gives stylized examples of uh, situations that the department may investigate because they could be violations of Title IX. They, they do not... But they were just picked out of thin air? I mean, they're stylized. I mean, they seem fairly specific. I mean, I don't... What? Are, why are they even there, then? What's the whole... What's the point of the fact sheet at all? You know, these are informational documents. The fact sheet was issued to parents and students about, again, in light of Bostock, how the department understands uh, the prohibition on sex discrimination does encompass... Uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity, but it just doesn't address what what a particular policy or practice con- does in fact constitute well, discrimination. What does fully enforce language mean in the documents? You know, the, the language is quite clear that the department would fully enforce Title IX. It's not enforcing these documents. And that's but it is so, enforcing... So, uh, I'm sorry. Go ahead. It is enforcing the administration's understanding of Title IX, though. Certainly, Your Honor. It's enforcing okay. the administration's uh, understanding of and Title IX. And is this the administration's understanding of Title IX? It, it, is a, it is part of the administration's understanding of Title IX. It is one aspect of it. But the, the, the state's understanding, it, it, in terms of standing, Your Honor, the state's theory is that these documents prohibit specific state laws. But they don't do that. Uh, these documents don't address any particular state law. And, and, and the critically, Your Honor... Well, if well, this, oh, go ahead. Um, but in your notice of compliance, you say, uh, we will not treat as binding uh, these documents. Did you treat them as binding before Judge Ashley's uh, injunction? Not at all, Your Honor. And that's 
and you say you won't base your position on these documents, is there any difference in what you would do basing them on the documents as opposed to not basing them on the documents? Your Honor, the, the documents themselves explain that they will guide the agency's enforcement of Title IX, but, but these documents are not what's being enforced. And, and that's... So, but, but why does that make a difference? So if you have regulations, which as I understand you do, that say that states, I don't know, states may have bathrooms segregated by sex and sports teams segregated by sex, and if you've put that out in a notice and comment regulation, in order to change position, right, under state form, wouldn't you have to do another notice and comment rulemaking? So if, if, if you have a rule out that says this is the administration's, this is the United States' interpretation, the Department of Education's interpretation of Title IX, how can you enforce a contrary interpretation of Title IX without going through notice and comment? I just, I'm kind of at a loss. You know, the July 22 NPRM, I think, and maybe what you're referring to. Uh, no, I'm referring to 34 CFR 106.33. A recipient may provide separate toilet, locker room, and shower facilities on the basis that's of That's the existing reg that's been there since, oh, what, the 70s, 80s? Yes, Your Honor, these are the existing regulations. My yeah. apologies, I misunderstood the question. Uh, the... These documents, again, these documents have been enjoined on a procedural ground. And these documents don't address regulated entities' existing um, existing obligations under existing regulations. They just don't speak to it. You can't look at these documents and say, is any particular policy or practice a violation of Title IX? Again, they don't speak to what constitutes prohibited sex discrimination or whether any particular policy or practice does. And again, just... So does that mean that, for example... What is gender identity isn't really addressed? Your Honor, that doesn't address gender identity. Okay, well, I mean, you say, you say that discrimination on account of that is forbidden. And, for example, maybe this is too merits-based, but to me, and help me if I'm wrong, gender identity can be expressed, let's say, by a declaration or by manner of dress or presentation, or by chemical changes, or by surgery. There's a transition, is a process. Are you saying the government has no position on when you become trans? Not reflecting these documents, Your Honor. These, these documents don't speak to it. And again, I just want to point one more thing. What, what the department has vowed to fully enforce is Title IX. Yeah. Not these documents. Which but means you have an existing interpretation of Title IX that exists in notice and comment regulations. Yes? Your Honor, there are existing regulations yeah. as so, Title IX's obligations. So if you were now to proceed against a school district based on a contrary interpretation of Title IX, would you be allowed to do that? Saying, well... Our regulations now, we have these regulations, our, we, we now, our regulations, we have a different view. We haven't withdrawn the regulations. I mean, that's why I'm getting stuck. You're, I, I just don't think that these documents address that. These documents... But your, your, your argument really is that they don't change the regulations. They, they couldn't, Your Honor. They're not... They're not so, like, so, so that if you, said, if, you, if you litigate, the other side or whoever the other side is can say... 
your position violates the regulations, right? Your Honor, if the... Surely the answer to that has got to be yes. If an enforcement action was brought and... Whatever you're doing violates the regulations, that's a legitimate position. Your Honor, exactly. And these documents wouldn't be... So in other words, you aren't going to enforce, even though the documents say you will fully enforce this understanding of Title IX, what you're saying is, don't worry, we're not going to do that. We will not enforce an understanding of Title IX that is contrary to the existing interpretation of Title IX, which is sex discrimination based on biological sex is fine with respect to bathrooms and sports teams. Your Honor, if I may, I would direct the Court to the July 22 NPRM, where there the Department of Education has explained its understanding of how Title IX's prohibition on sex discrimination, and in light of Bostock and its treatment of gender identity and sexual orientation, how those interact with the existing obligations under Title IX and the current regulations. The point is that these documents, in an enforcement action that would be brought, these documents would be entitled to no deference at all. Why isn't this just saying, we've got a contrary interpretation of the statute. It conflicts with our existing regulations, but we're going to enforce our contrary understanding. So it gives notice. Why should the states not feel like, gosh, we have to do something here? Your Honor, again, a few things. In terms of the standing analysis, because these documents do not impose any obligations on the states, because they're not enforceable in any way, any harm that the states have suffered is not traceable to these documents. But the document says that the schools have a responsibility to investigate and address sex discrimination, including sex harassment, blah, blah, blah. So that you're saying you have a responsibility to investigate, and here are examples of the kinds of incidents that you can investigate. You know, somebody wants to try out for their girls' cheerleading team, you know, et cetera, et cetera. I don't understand. If I'm a state and I'm reading this document, you're saying, well, this document means nothing. It's like a blank page. What am I supposed to do if I'm the university president? Just say, oh, I don't have to deal with this thing at all? Your Honor, a few things. One, again, the obligation to investigate flows from Title IX. And so, again, if you enjoin these documents. But what if we're not enjoining the document? I mean, it's weird. Enjoin a document. Enjoin an enforcement. Enjoin the administration's enforcement of a contrary, a position that is contrary to their prior position that didn't go through notice and comment. But, Your Honor, these. You don't enjoin a document. Like, it can exist. I don't, I mean, I could. Isn't that what the judge actually did? That's what the judge actually did, Your Honor, exactly. What was done here was these documents were enjoined. The implementation of these documents were enjoined. The implementation of the documents. The implementation of the interpretation that's contrary to the existing interpretation. No, Your Honor. I don't think that's quite right. What the district court did here was issued a preliminary injunction enjoining implementation of these documents. We submitted a notice of compliance indicating that we don't understand that injunction to bar the department from enforcing the obligations of Title IX itself. And it would be a very curious thing, Your Honor, to enjoin an understanding of Title IX. Especially because the preliminary injunction here was issued on procedural grounds. And so, I would point to this court's, the Eighth Circuit's decision in the School of Ozark. Where the 
court there was faced with a nearly identical document and found that the state's, I mean, uh, sorry, regulated entities lacked standing precisely because any obligations flowed from the Fair Housing Act, not from the document itself. Counsel, let me, let me, uh, there's a, <laughs> we're lawyers, this is a linguistic discussion. I, I heard Judge Larson say, look, you've got an interpretation that's contrary to existing regulations. Your document says at 32.639, column 3, this interpretation supersedes and replaces any prior inconsistent statements. Is it your position that it's only prior statements that you're superseding, you're not superseding any regulation? Certainly, Your Honor. So, okay, but, but then the statements wouldn't be, have been binding either. No, and, and Your Honor... Would it, would it have made any difference if instead of issuing the regulation, the president made a speech saying exactly the same thing? I don't think so, Your Honor. The, the agencies issue documents like this all the time, and they reflect the agency's understanding of the statute that it is, is, it is charged with enforcing. It doesn't mean that the, the documents that they are, that the, these kind of notices of interpretation are final agency action, or and critically, they're not legislative rules. They can't be enforced. And it's borne out, Your Honor, by the fact that during the course of this litigation, private parties have brought suits against the states. And neither the private parties nor the courts that are adjudicating those disputes have understood these documents in any way to create legal obligations or determine legal rights. So they're, they're not legislative. So the U.S. has never cited these documents in any amicus brief or any position in any of those cases? You know, I think there was a Title VII case where this was cited as a C also, but it has not cited these documents in any of the Title IX cases, precisely because they don't create any legal rights and obligations, and they wouldn't be accorded any weight in adjudication. Yeah, I'm just still, yeah, okay, so you wouldn't get Chevron deference because they're, on your theory, they're just interpretive rules, so you wouldn't get Chevron deference, et cetera, but I'm just still puzzled about why the administration would put out a, some documents that you're now claiming don't mean anything, that you're saying you're going to fully enforce, that conflict with prior regulations. A, a few things, Your Honor. I, yeah. I, the reason that these documents have put out, again, agencies put out documents like this all the time. But it's not just like, here's the Secretary of Education's musings on Title IX. It's not like, oh, I had some thoughts about how this might interact with Bostock, like a law review article. It's like, I have some thoughts, and you have a duty as a school district to comply with my thoughts. I don't, yeah, Your Honor, explain the, that. The duty is to comply with Title IX. Right. Not these documents. And these documents were enjoined on procedural grounds. And so, you know. But the Secretary's interpretation of Title IX is what the Secretary is going to enforce. And the Secretary's interpretation of Title, this interpretation of Title IX conflicts with existing regulations regarding Title IX. You, so I just, I'm just... Your Honor, I see my time is running out. A, a few points. Uh, we would contest that these documents uh, conflict with existing regulations. But even putting that aside, even if the Secretary got... But how do they not conflict with the existing regulations? They just do not address what, how regulated entities' obligations to not discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity operate within the context of the existing regulations. And that's borne out by the notice of proposed rulemakings in the July 22 and the most recent sports one. Right, but, the, but blanket rules 
would not be permitted, right? So the states claim, like, we have blanket rules. And, I, I mean, maybe you're telling me that's wrong. Maybe you'll say, well, the administration is going to allow some states to have blanket rules, and that's what we mean by case by case? Your Honor, my time has run out. I may finish. Yeah. Um, Your Honor, these documents are, are – if I would point the, the court to the filing in the BPJ case, the Fourth Circuit, which is the West Virginia athletics case, mm -hmm. you know, the interpretation that's set out here is merely the jumping off point for the for the department's position that categorical bans of that nature in fact violate Title IX under existing regulations. But the, the interpretation that is set out in these documents are, are merely just you know one part of that analysis. They don't really get you to why it is the case that a law like that it does in fact violate Title IX. But again, just putting that all so aside, does that, does that mean that in BPJ? If the government's position is consistent with your notice of compliance, uh, it is, Your Honor, because the government there is not relying on these documents, and that's the point. Putting even putting these again, I'm sorry, if I may finish. Even putting so that the Judge Ashley's decision makes you no worse off in BPJ. No, Your Honor, and, and again, so why the, are you fighting to to pursue it if it makes you no worse off? Why are you trying to get rid of something that makes you no worse off? You know, because there's, there is value um, in the Department of having the ability to tell regulated entities what its understanding is, and that's especially the case in light of the uncertainty that was created after Bostock. Uh, but again, I just want to make this last point. Even putting aside whether the interpretation is right, Your Honor, or wrong, that doesn't make this a legislative rule. You know, the D.C. Circuit in, poet, uh, in the Poet Biorefining case said, an interpretive rule may be, it's still an interpretive rule, even if the interpretive question is wrong, right? The key is whether the documents themselves are imposing legal obligations. And, and these documents are not doing that. They cannot be enforced. They're not being relied upon by courts. They don't create legal obligations. They're just not the type of thing that are legislative rules. I see my time is up. If there's any other questions, I'll... Questions? All right. Thank you. Clark Littlebrand for the state of Tennessee and 18 other plaintiff states. Uh, so first of all, these documents do impose obligations on the states that we did not have before the documents were issued. Uh, the interpretation says that where OCR's investigation reveals that one or more individuals has been discriminated against because of their sexual orientation or gender identity, the resolution of such complaint will address the specific compliance concerns or violations identified in the course of this investigation. Before this document was issued, uh, discriminating on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity was not a violation of Title IX or existing Department of Education regulations. Uh, similarly, as Your Honor pointed out, for the fact sheet... So, so stuffing a kid in a locker because he's wearing a dress wouldn't violate Title IX? Uh, I mean, causing harm to a student... Uh, because of the student's sex, um, that would be something they would consider there, but dr merely dressing up a certain way. Um, Title IX doesn't address every sort of incident of misconduct that occurs uh, in schools across the country. But what the fact sheet does is it says that um, simply having sex-separated bathrooms, it's one of the examples that's provided there, uh, would be a violation of Title IX. And that's not what previous Department of Education 
regulations or Section 1686. So your friend on the other side is saying, but their documents are essentially meaningless at this point. So why don't we just wait until they actually bring some kind of enforcement action against you or one of the other states, and then we can just adjudicate it in the normal course? Why do we need a pre-enforcement challenge at this point? Uh, Pre-enforcement challenges are, are common in APA context to protect us from the significant billions of dollars loss of funds that would occur uh, if we were forced to wait uh, for the agencies to drop the hammer and bring enforcement action against us. Uh, but, but you're not paying penalties now. I mean, you're not. There's no. There's no expense now, is there? I mean, in some of the cases, you're, you have ongoing penalties. You have penalties that kick in right away. You got to go to court get it stopped, whatever it is. I don't see how that's true in this context. So two responses, Your Honor. First of all, there are compliance costs. If we were to comply with these documents, we'd have to change our policies, change the way that we structure our bathrooms, our athletics teams. And second of all... Well, he's saying you don't. <laughs> well, I, my understanding. I, well, simply reading these documents. The settled maybe today? I don't know. <laughs> well, simply, that's what they'll say in court here, but simply reading these documents say that public elementary and secondary schools, as well as public and private colleges and universities, have a responsibility to investigate and address sex discrimination against students because of their perceived or actual sexual orientation or gender identity. So in and, and this has been their position in court, is that this doesn't do anything, but reading the documents themselves, they do impose obligations on the states and schools. We, do, we now, now, I had a bunch of questions to ask, but he answered most of them before I asked them. I mean, he said on the record as a government uh, uh, spokesperson, a lawyer, there's no, there's no deference due to these documents, uh, that they impose no legal obligations, and they make them no better off in litigation. I mean, we, if we issue an opinion saying all of those things, uh, doesn't that give you 99.44% of what you want? Well, I would say look at the government's actions outside of this case. They've cited this uh, in Klug, as they said, that Indiana school includes? includes the Seventh Circuit case okay. um, where the government is, they filed a brief five days after uh, oral argument at the district court uh, saying that a school exposed itself to Title IX liability if a teacher did not use preferred pronouns, and they specifically cited uh, the interpretation. They've also opened an investigation of Granbury Independent School District in Texas where the complaint was based on uh, the interpretation fact sheet. They didn't tell us that this was going on. We had to bring that to the court's attention. So would you, would you, would your argument be that in the absence of this, uh, they would have been barred from even beginning an investigation of whatever happened in Granbury? I think with the, with the, injunction in place, they are barred from opening an investigation against a school district relying on those documents. So has Grant, well, relying on, but has, has Granberry, has that investigation been closed? Somebody waived the Judge Ashley's decision and said, go back to Washington? Uh, well, that case involves a Texas school district, and Texas is not part of the preliminary injunction, so they can't enforce it against them there. Um, read the list well enough, then. Yeah, um, and so th those are examples where they have. They, this has also been cited against us by private parties. Uh, ASV Lee is one of the examples that we provided where Tennessee was sued and a party uh, cited over a bathroom issue and a party cited. How would it be any different if it were a secretarial speech or a presidential speech that says in, in, in vigorous terms the same thing? Yeah, so the, the two questions are whether or not it's the consummation of their decision-making or whether or not it has... Uh, 
the effect of, of, of law or imposes new obligations. So um, a, a mere speech that says this is what I think about Title IX or if it's just simply that this is a, well, a starting the point. The president, if the president says this is what I think about Title IX and I've told everybody to do what I think, that's what presidents do, isn't it? If the if president got on the phone and called every school district and said you must you have an obligation not to discriminate on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity, that might be comparable to what what they have done so here. A speech can be a legislative rule. Well, I think here they it's it's different because there's reduced to a text. They publish it in the federal. If he if he put out a speech, published it in the federal register, um, and then they sent it out to all the schools, telling them they had an obligation to comply with that. Um, then such a statement by the department uh, could be a final agency action. I mean, if he said something like, you know, by the way, you know that we fully enforce Title IX, wink, wink, nod, nod. I mean, I don't... Or your federal funding is on the... Your, your federal funding could be on the line. Yeah, I don't know if that would really be the conservation of the final of the agency's decision making here. Here, these really do bind uh, the department to act in, in the certain way here. They take away discretion, uh, as we see in cases such as Texas v. EEOC um, or McCuth, where it takes away the agency's discretion on how they're able to approach this. But now you won, won there, and they didn't appeal, right? In Texas versus EEOC. So there, there are multiple Texas. Multiple, sorry, uh, there are multiple Texas v. EEOC. This is the, I believe, the 2015 oh, Texas v. EEOC. I'm talking about the one where what Judge, Judge Kazmarek just struck it down, and they didn't appeal the thing that was issued by the EEOC chair, right? Which that one was very vigorous in turn. Well, I thought it was odd, and maybe you can help me. It's very vigorous in flatly saying that. Uh, transgender uh, women can use women's facilities, but it was also even more vigorous than, than your adversary here in saying this means nothing. Uh, I don't know if you were involved in litigating. I, I wondered maybe you can tell me on rebuttal why they didn't appeal that. I, I, I would have my guesses as why they didn't appeal the Fifth Circuit, but we weren't involved in, okay. in litigating that case, so I, I couldn't say there, Your Honor. Let's go. Can we go back to the question about, you know, the presidential statement or whatever it might be. What is it that you think takes these documents out of the realm of what I think you conceded was just an interpretation or just amusing by the president? Is it the will enforce language? What What is it that makes these documents cross the line from interpretive to legislative? So the two things, Your Honor, are first of all, is it takes away discretion from the agency and how they approach these in the future. Um, they're saying that you, you have to treat uh, discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation or gender identity uh, as a violation of Title IX. It creates that new obligation that we didn't have beforehand. Um, and then the second way uh, that it's uh, distinct from that scenario um, is that it conflicts with uh, the previous uh, – it's sent out to all of the uh, schools and institutions – um, it informs them that this is the new conflicting. We're setting aside all of our previous statements. This is what you have to follow now. Uh, so that makes it distinct from just a presidential speech. This is a consummation of final uh, agency decision-making. But you, you agree you, you just use the language supersedes previous statements, not supersedes previous regulations. I, I don't see how these documents can impose the obligations they purport to, to impose without conflicting uh, with those regulations and with the text of Title IX itself, which 
Section 1686 uh, expressly allows uh, schools to provide separate living facilities uh, for the different sexes. Uh, these clearly conflict with that. Uh, the examples in the fact sheet, for, for instance, uh, say that we have to allow a student, uh, a male student, to use a girl's restroom. This is essentially a 1682 action that was the authority to issue this, or can they just do it without any? I mean, I'm, what's the statutory kind of basis for the issuance of this thing? Or maybe they're saying it, do, it doesn't need one. It's just a amusing of somebody at the Department of Education. I think this would be rulemaking under uh, Section 1682, which is not precluded from bringing uh, an APA action against. Um, I see my time has expired, so unless there are... Can I ask you a couple sure. procedural questions? Um, Arizona, what is the status of Arizona? Are they not a party anymore? Uh, so Arizona is still a party. Um, I believe that they are, would like to seek to remove themselves from the case. I don't represent Arizona uh, in this case. So I can't speak for them, but that's my understanding that at some point they'd like to remove themselves okay, from the case. Okay, but the briefs are not filed on behalf of Arizona. No, the briefs are not filed on behalf of Arizona, Your Honor. Um, I don't know if you can address this or not. It seems to me that Ohio does not have the same kind of law that the other states do in terms of directly conflicting, arguably, with the guidance. Is that your understanding as well? Uh, I, I have not, we have not identified in Ohio law that arguably conflict, but Ohio would still have standing as an object of the regulation and with compliance costs that they would face. But you're correct, Your Honor, that we have not identified an existing I, Ohio law. I hear the compliance cost argument, and I certainly saw that in the Kentucky versus Yellen. It seems like there was evidence in those cases of compliance costs as opposed to just one or two paragraphs in a complaint. So I guess is there any indication or am I missing something on compliance costs? For compliance costs, we filed declarations for Tennessee, but we have not filed declarations okay. for the other states, Your Honor. Okay, thank you. Oh, I have I have one final question, kind of like that. So uh, the United States says, well, the states kind of claim that they have conflicting laws, but their laws don't really conflict. I think you say the laws arguably conflict. I'm wondering at the preliminary injunction stage, like what What's the standard? Is it arguably conflict? Is it, do we have to, to use an analogy, make sort of an eerie guess about what these state statutes mean? Like what, what's the standard at this PI stage? The standard is arguably conflict because that's what we would need to, in order to bring uh, our claim against uh, the agencies. But here it's, it's even clearer for some of the statutes, such as the West Virginia statute, where the United States has taken the position that uh, it violates Title IX because it's a blanket uh, ban. Uh, for uh, women's sports. So uh, even for some of the states, it's not it's not hard to discern that the United States even thinks that there's a conflict uh, between these documents uh, and the state laws. Counsel, let me, let me ask you this, and this is, I'm asking for help because I can't find the, the document. Somewhere in one of the documents, I thought <coughs> the statement was made or the position was made that an inter- that the the um, forcefulness of will do in a legislative rule is that you really have the agency has to follow it. In an interpretive rule, is they can follow they can in fact press that or not. Number one, do you know where that might have come from? And B, is that a good distinction? I think it's a, a good distinction that if it takes away discretion from the agency, and you can see in cases. <coughs> Uh, McLuth are two examples of those. They have to follow, and it takes away that discretion. But then is is that circular that 
if it takes away discretion, it's a legislative rule, but if it's only something that guides them, then it's only an interpretive rule. Isn't that circular? I mean, it may be a good distinction, but isn't something you have to make other than looking at it, you have to decide on, on normal principles. Is it interpretative or legislative? Uh, that, that's, that's the rule that I've seen uh, in cases, Your Honor, for distinguishing between legislative and interpretive rules. Um, and even where an interpretive rule, as in uh, poet biorefining, is one of the cases that opposing counsel cites, um, even where it's just an interpretive rule, where there's a vote false change of uh, the agency's approach to something, uh, even then uh, it's still considered. You said where there is a full. Volt Foss is the, um, my French is not the best, but it's V O L T E F A. Oh, about face. About face, ah. yes. But Volt Foss is a specific term that the decision which. Your French is much better than mine. <laughs> Uh, but that's, and, and Judge Garland actually uh, ironically joined that decision in the D.C. Circuit um, when he, back when he was a judge. Um, and so when there's a volt foss, uh, that's a final agency action that uh, regulated entities have standing uh, to bring a pre-enforcement uh, challenge against. Uh, so here, similarly, the fact sheet interpretation, we're in about face uh, from the agency's previous approach uh, to these issues and impose obligations on the institutions that they did not have previously. Um, and for those reasons, uh, we encourage uh, this court to affirm the district court's uh, preliminary injunction of the interpretation fact sheet and dismiss as moot without vacatur uh, the appeal of the EC technical. Can I just back, I'm sorry. We're in, we're in joining the fact sheet? We're in joining the document or are we enjoining an enforcement based on a, an interpretation of Title IX that is contrary to existing regulation? It just seems odd to me that any court could enjoin a document. I mean, when you enjoin a rule or declare it, you know, vacated under 706, if that's still going to be a thing, we'll find out. But um, if you're not enjoining the rule from existing. You're enjoining enforcement of, right? So yes, Your Honor. Sorry, to, to clear, you're, you're correct, Your Honor. You're enjoining the agency from implementing the interpretation of fact sheet and the new approach to Title IX that's embodied uh, in those documents. It's common shorthand to refer to enjoining a document or a law, but you're correct, Your Honor, that what's really going on is we're asking, and this what this short did, to enjoin the implementation of the rewriting of Title IX and body okay, these so documents. Because it didn't go through notice and comment. So you're saying, you're, I mean, I know you have substantive grounds too, but if they had gone through notice and comment, that ground would be gone. You'd say, well, you've made an about face, and maybe the about face is lawful, or maybe it's not, but it's procedurally regular. Yes, sir, we'd have the procedural, we'd also have substantive arguments. I, I understand. Yes, sir. Just, again, the linguistics here. Language at one point was used of enjoining the enforcement of this document. They say there's no enforcement. Other times you say enjoining the implementation of this document. If, if whatever you did, does that of its own force mean that they can't take a litigating position in some action in some other court that, that Judge Ashley has said You've got to shut up and you can't take this position? So, enjoying the implementation, so they wouldn't be able to rely on these, they wouldn't be able to cite. Rely, they, and they say they're not. 
they say that they're not going forward, and when I asked him why are you worse off, he didn't give me a very good answer, which would mean that why are you better off with this injunction than without it? And I think we're better off because we've seen that with the 2022 notice of proposed rulemaking, for example, they try to make that consistent with the agency's interpretation. So what this would do is prevent the agency from... But the notice of rulemaking will end up with whatever rule it ends up after all the comments, right? I mean, whether it refers back to this or not is not going to make any difference, is it? Well, it requires the agency to approach these, and McLuth is an example, to approach these with an open mind instead of being already having made the decision that they had, this is now what Title IX means. And so we're better off in that the agency would really have to... So if you lose, either by us or in some other means, that's going to affect whether a future rulemaking is legal or not? So here the agency has already consummated its decision-making process that this is what Title IX means. They don't contest that here. So we're better off in that this would stop the agency from continuing on feeling that they are bound to follow this new rewriting of Title IX. So that's a way in which... Bound to follow, but they could follow it because they wanted to, because the lawyers in Idaho decide that's the government's position? I mean, that argument would apply to any sort of... Even if they'd gone through notice and comment rulemaking, if the agency were to say, and that's what the 2022 proposed rulemaking says, is simply that it's trying to clarify what Title IX already requires. So even if we were to bring a challenge to that point, the agency's... The rule were that if it's merely clarifying... Does the new NOPR say we're only clarifying? They use the word clarifying throughout. They use it, but that's... I thought they... I thought he would concede that it doesn't... That the new reg, if enacted in its current form, would impose new legal obligations. I mean, it imposes obligations. It imposes obligations on us. I think that they've already imposed many of those obligations on us through the fact sheet and the interpretation. But in cases where they don't have an open mind when they're going through the subsequent notice of proposed rulemaking, we're still allowed to challenge the initial... I mean, I don't know how enjoining these documents is going to open their mind. I mean, I don't... Like, if the secretary... Now I'm back to the Secretary of Education made a speech or wrote a law review article. Musings on Title IX. Here's what I think it means after Title IX. And it's just published it in a law review. And, I mean, you might say, like, okay, the Secretary of Education has committed himself to a position on what Title IX means. And then when he goes through the notice of proposed rulemaking, people are going to write in and say, no, that's not what it means. It means something else. And we couldn't enjoin him from writing a law review article. So that piece of it just seems like an odd answer. Like, it seems to me like any harm has to come from, like, an interim enforcement of these rules. Like, you're threatened with, you know, withholding funding or you're going to have to change your bathroom policy or whatever in a way that conflicts with existing regulations and didn't go through notice and comment. These are not mere musings. They impose... They say that we have a... We now have... And they inform us, they send them out to every school that we have an obligation not to discriminate based on sexual orientation and gender identity. And they provide those examples there. So these are not mere musings. These aren't preliminary thoughts. They don't... In the filings in this case, they'll say that this is just merely what the agency thinks. But in these documents themselves, they're not saying this is just merely what the Secretary thinks this might mean. So... You have to enforce Title IX this way, starting now. 
Yes, Your Honor. And that's, that's how regulated entities throughout the country have treated this. Just this past week in Wisconsin, uh, there was a school district uh, that has a locker room policy that cites uh, the interpretation, and they had a trans... It, the allegations are that a, a male student who's 18 years old disrobed in front of four female students uh, in a locker room there in Wisconsin. And the agencies, certain the schools' uh, policy on locker rooms cites the interpretation. So schools throughout the country are treating these documents as if they have those obligations. The school adopted a policy, right? Am I, am I, am I hearing the situation correctly? My understanding is that the school's uh, locker room policy adopted after the interpretation uh, came out and citing the interpretation al- well, allows... The, government, the U.S. government's going to make us do this. The, yes, the U.S. Right. government if, is if, making us. If we, don't, well, if we don't do this, they're going to bring enforcement they actually... Blame, <laughs> they blame the government for what they want to do anyway, which is a, a common thing for entities to do. But I just want to make sure I'm right that in this situation... The school has officially voluntarily adopted a policy that your clients or similar folks don't like so that if, if we upheld Judge Ashley's injunction, this would wipe out the Wisconsin policy? The school board would be required to change the policy because they cited this other document? So the interpretation fact sheet give regulated entities two options: either you comply and you you comply and you would have to adopt policies like that, and they provide the examples of you have to let uh, individuals use living facilities consistent with their gender identity, even if it's inconsistent with their sex, or you risk the loss of Title IX funding. And so that's the choice that it puts every school and university uh, throughout the country. Well, I'm just to. trying to focus on the Wisconsin. You're uh, are you saying that if, if you win this litigation, that will wipe out the Wisconsin policy, or simply it would it would uh, give them political cover, or it would require them to take away the political cover they have? I, I'm, no, I'm no expert on Wisconsin politics, but under Title IX, uh, Section 1686 expressly uh, gives schools the option one way or the other to do something, but this these documents take away... Uh, the discretion of schools and says that say that you have to do this. Uh, for example, in, in Tennessee, we have a case, uh, DHV Williamson County, uh, where there's a, been a decision on the preliminary injunction there, uh, where there's an 18-year-old, uh, sorry, an 8-year-old, I think, uh, biological boy uh, who wants to use the girls' uh, restroom at the, the elementary school there. Um, without the injunction in place, uh, the school is going to tell us we have to follow uh, the interpretation or fact in fact sheet if not, they're going to follow through on their promise to so, open an investigation of us. Okay. I, we probably should wrap this up, but this you're saying in the state of Tennessee we're getting pushback from our local school districts. But the local school districts, correct me if I'm wrong, they don't negotiate directly with the government for their funding, right? You do. The, the actions taken by the Department of Education are usually against the local school district, and that's with the Granberry uh, example of that. So would that be that the local school district would lose its portion of Tennessee's overall funding, or that Tennessee would lose funding as a whole or in part because – how does that work? I, I would have to uh, – I have to investigate the issue, Your Honor, but we we have a state law that applies statewide that would arguably conflict with that there. So if that were, if they took an enforcement action and reached that decision, that would uh, implicate 
uh, schools across the state. Then right. yeah. is is Wisconsin one of the one of the litigants? No, Your Honor, Wisconsin is not one of the litigants. So they are bound okay, to follow the interpretation of fact sheet. That so. question then. Okay. All right. Any more questions? All right. Thank you. Thank you, Your Honors. Good morning, and may it please the court. Matthew Bowman for the intervener appellees, uh, including uh, AF, who's a female high school athlete in Arkansas, which is protected by this injunction. And I'd like to talk about some of the questions that the court was, was just asking about what the injunction does and why it's effective. In Can I ask you a yes. question uh, before I forget? <laughs> um, school of Ozark, I, you all represent them, I think, in a filed assert petition. Indeed. Um, is is that case? Um, I mean, what is the impact I, um, on our case? I guess the argument there being, we're just following. The, if you're just following the statute, there's a traceability problem. Um, are you asking for something for us to do something inconsistent with that case, or can are the cases distinguishable? I'm asking the court to just follow the law of this circuit. And in this circuit under Azar and Parsons and Detroit Edison, when an agency issues a document that does three things together, it creates a new standard, it says it's going to be fully enforced, and it gives examples about how the regulated entities must comply, then that's a legislative rule. Whatever the, the Eighth Circuit said about what the Department of Housing and Urban Development said on, on, uh, on this issue, uh, the, the ultimate issue there, I think, uh, involved whether there was a religious exemption that's not relevant here, um, and then, then there was this sort of overlapping question of whether you have uh, a right, uh, whether you have uh, an Article Three injury uh, if your notice and comment rights were denied under the APA. Now, this court has said in Dismas Charities that you do. So whatever the Eighth Circuit thinks about that, uh, the binding precedent of this circuit is under Azar, under Dismas Charities, that legislative <clears throat> rules, even if the agency labels them not legislative rules, uh, they are to be treated by the substance of what they do. And it's the combination of those factors, I think that you pointed out earlier, Judge Nalbandian, uh, that can't be taken in isolation. But when a regulated entity gets a document that says, here's a new legal standard, and they even admit that it's really new, uh, no discrimination on the basis of gender identity and sexual orientation. We're going to fully enforce it against you. Here's a list of examples. Bathrooms, sports teams, let the let, uh, let one sex try out for the other, let one have entry to the other. That's, uh, that's binding. It creates new law. Uh, it's not merely a statement. And that's why it's not an interpretive rule. But uh, as to Michael, yes. Let me get this right just so I got it. You started out saying there are three things and then the last minute or two, it only sounded like two things. You can give me the three things again that made it a legislative rule. Yes, it create. Uh, uh, so you're issuing. It's issuing a new, a binding standard. Here's what you. Here's here's. It's, uh, it's like uh, the rule itself, or the or the law that new and binding. Is that two things or one out of your three? I think I think it's two. Okay. So there's you a legal and standard. Binding. Okay. There's a legal standard. Here's how how must I behave? Okay. How must I behave? You can't you can't allow discrimination on the basis of gender identity or sexual orientation. And then do I have to follow it? Yes, we'll fully enforce it against you. That's what fully enforced means. It, it can't mean anything else. And the third one is, well, in, in the do we know what that means in specific? 
Oh, yes, we do. Here are a bunch of examples. Bathrooms, sports, pronouns, et cetera. Okay, thank so you. So there's, there's no, you combine all those three together, there is no regulated entity that gets that message and thinks, oh, I don't have to comply with this. There's a, there's a boilerplate at the end. And, and courts have dismissed boilerplate, the D.C. Circuit, uh, in Appalachian Power. And, and, so, and, and th so this court's precedent says that. But my client has a right, and this is important, my client has a right under Title IX to have female sports teams at her school. And what the department's rule does is it pushes men into those leagues. And when you push men into female teams and leagues, they're not female teams and leagues anymore. And so the agency has denied her rights under the existing Title IX rules in the statute. And that in itself, under the APA Section 702, is something that allows you to bring a challenge. And that's what makes the department's rule not just a violation of the notice and comment requirement, but contrary... Is she injured right now, or is she not? Is she injured when she doesn't get the last spot on the team and it goes to a boy? She's protected from injury by the injunction. That's why we want it affirmed. Right, but I'm just talking about in general. In, in the anyway. absence of the injunction, how would she be injured? She, she would have lost her. She would have lost her legal right because Title IX now gives her the legal right. Is there a boy team? who wants to join the team? Uh, is there a competition that that she's going to lose? Those speculative in that sense. It's not speculative in the sense that it's happening in states where this isn't happening. In fact, men are injuring high school girls in states like North Carolina, a case where uh, a man spiked a ball into a high school girl's face and gave her concussion. She has to have her own injury. She can't assert the rights of female athletes in North Carolina. Well, the injury she has is, is, is the loss of a legal right. So if the government says, you have a right to this under Title IX for 50 years, you have a right to female teams, and then the department comes along and says, no, you don't. They've changed her legal right. Before, uh, whether or not uh, boys have uh, come up in her high school and asked to do this, her legal rights changed, and courts widely recognize, as does the APA, that if you adversely affect someone's legal rights, that in itself is an injury. And this court has said that Congress can create uh, statutes that have legal rights, the, in, the deprivation of which gives standing to sue. It said that in, in the uh, investment... Uh, Invest, Imhoff investment it case. It can't be that, like, she has a right to have a... I mean, what if there were, like, a some Department of Education regulation that threatened free lunch at her school, but she's very wealthy, so she would never qualify for free lunch. She couldn't be like, well, I have a right to go to a school where there's free lunch, right? I That's mean, not her situation. She's on a female sports teams at, that, that, are, that she's been guaranteed the right to for f almost 50 years that Congress approved. These aren't even just Title IX regulations. Congress has essentially approved these regulations. The department has no more authority to change these than it has to rewrite the public law itself. I see my time has expired, but I'm glad to take additional questions. Um, just to answer one more of your questions, Judge Larson, the, the language of the injunction uh, just d does say that the agents of the department are enjoined from implementing the, the documents. So that's how this language is working. Thank, Thank you very much. All right, we'll hear rebuttal. Uh, thanks, Your Honors. I have a, a few points. Judge Nobanian, to your point about the School of Ozarks case, that case is, the holding there is indistinguishable from uh, a holding here that the states have standing. Um, the case there held at a nearly identical document, an injury. In, I, so in business charities, though, we said that a notice and there was a notice and comment injury essentially in this circuit, right? I mean, if you if you if you're injured by this reg that didn't have 
didn't go through notice and comment, whatever that is. And I, I don't. We are bound by that, not by what the A circuit says. Yeah, but the traceability and redressability point would be the same, right? Where the injury was flowing because the documents there were. But not. in the in Dismas Charities, we said there was. We specifically addressed the standing question and said there was standing. I, doesn't that take care of the question? Here? I, I don't think so, Your Honor. And only in that, that the, the, the key is that the, what's being enforced is the statute itself. And so addressability and traceability is the, any injuries caused by the statute and is not traceable to an injunction um, that would is bar Is that true in every agency case? In other words, if the EPA is enforcing the Clean Water Act or the Clean Air Act, they could, you, they're regs, but they're really enforcing the statute ultimately, right? Or else we have a real delegation problem. So what's, so that just proves too much, doesn't it? No, because you're in, 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 the, in this case, it's the, the fact that these are, these documents are not legislative rules that are in fact imposing obligations. If you have a situation in which uh, the claim is that you're injured by a regulation, then the regulation is what is imposing the legal obligation, not these kind of these documents that aren't themselves imposing any legal but, obligations. But why? I mean, we just heard from the intervener who said, "Look, under Azar, it has got to be a new interpretation." Which I think you concede it's new, right? It has to be specific. Here's how it will work. And I grant that there might be play in the margins, but as far as a blanket rule, that's out, right? And then we'll fully enforce. This is what the document says. We will fully enforce. So how isn't that just Azar? You know, it's, it's not Azar in at least two respects. You know, first, I would point to this court's decision in Persons, right? The court there said that even the legal determination that in of itself did not uh, imp- have direct and appreciable legal consequences was in final agency action. And so these documents in and of themselves have no direct and appreciable legal consequences because they cannot be enforced. And so even if you think that this has a determinate legal position, that was the same in Parsons. And yet the court, this court decided that that wasn't final agency action that was reviewable. This is also quite different than Azar. You know, in, in Azar, you had the agency actually relying on these documents to determine a party's um, legal obligations and liability. And again, the, the department is not doing that in this context at all. And so these these documents aren't legislative rules in that sense because they what aren't imposing when you obligations. You say we're not doing that because you haven't yet brought an enforcement action, or because I mean, what does it mean we're not doing it? That you put out a notice to every school district in the country that said we will fully enforce this interpretation of Title IX. You know, the the key is that even if the department had reached the contrary conclusion. Right, had had held that 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 Basak didn't apply in this context in the way that the states would like, the states still could not use those documents to establish this legal safe harbor. If, for example, a private party sued them, right? That's the that's the key to tell that these aren't legislative rules. They don't create enforceable legal rights and obligations. And so, you know, again, whether the interpretation is one that this court agrees with. The question of whether something is a legislative rule can't turn on merely whether the interpretive inquiry was correct. It's whether it creates obligations. And the fact that if if the department had reached the contrary conclusion, these states still couldn't rely on these documents in defensive postures to create a safe harbor. I mean, they aren't legislative rules. So at the at the end of your of the first adversary's argument, as I wrote down, he said. This takes away the discretion of the school boards, and with this interpretation, 
the states like Wisconsin are required to allow the boys to disrobe in the girls' locker rooms. I take it that you absolutely deny that. You're right. I deny that these documents mean that in a specific context like this Wisconsin case, there is, they determine the outcome in any way. They just don't. But, and, at, the, but at the same time, you're not restrained even by Judge Atchley from going into Wisconsin and taking that position in litigation there. That's, understand, that's our understanding of the injunction. Okay. That's your understanding of the statute. At least you claim it's your understanding of the statute not relying on the interpretation. You know, I, I wouldn't even go so far. I mean, I, not that it is, is that it could be. Correct, you're right. Exactly. It could be. But, but would you be allowed to go, I mean, Wisconsin's not a party to this lawsuit. Would you be allowed to go into Tennessee? If the same thing happened in Tennessee, would you be allowed to go into Tennessee under the current injunction? That is the government's understanding of this, of the injunction, is that it is barred because, and this goes back to an earlier question that you had, Judge Larson, about what's it mean to enjoin implementation of a document, right? The, the preliminary injunction, again, I'm out of time, if I don't, if I may finish. The preliminary injunction here was based on a procedural defect, or a perceived procedural defect. And so the document is enjoined for, for that reason. If it were the case that the court had ruled on the substantive provisions, which it hasn't, but if it was the case, then there would be a question about whether it could adopt this understanding of Title IX. But that wasn't the ground for the injunction. And so our... Right, but if you wanted to go into court in Tennessee and say, our understanding of Title IX is that bathrooms and locker rooms may not be segregated on the basis of biological sex alone. That is not permitted, which I think is what these rules say. And then you went in and you tried to go after a school district in Tennessee. You have a regulation that says, well, that's fine. So I don't understand, like, what you're saying is I'd like the permission to act contrary to my regulations? No, not at all, Your Honor. Again, the West Virginia case is an example of this, right? In the West Virginia case, the BPJ case, the department filed an amicus brief there explaining why the department believes that a categorical ban like the West Virginia law is a violation of Title IX, including under the existing regulations that exist. Now, again, the court might disagree with that. And that's because they say on the basis of sex, which you've changed the interpretation of. So the existing regulations say you can have separate toilet, locker room, and shower facilities on the basis of sex. And since on the basis of sex you have a different understanding of it, is why you think that's authorized by this regulation? No, and I would direct your, Your Honor, I would, that inquiry is part of that, that the statute prohibits discrimination on the basis of sex. And in light of BASOC, the department understands that includes discrimination on the basis of sexual orientation and gender identity. Got it. Right? The department in the Fourth Circuit case then went on to explain, even in light of the existing regulations, which, you know, provide as they are, the department still understood that categorical bans to be a violation of Title IX because it violated, because they weren't sufficiently well drawn to, the classification there wasn't sufficiently well drawn to protect against the broader anti-discrimination principle that Title IX embodies. But, but, and. Now we're getting, we're kind of getting to the merits. But yeah, I understand. And just one more point, Your Honor. No one thinks that's a legislative rule, right? There, in the amicus brief, the department has set out its understanding in clear, in a clear way. It has said that it believes that the West Virginia law is a violation of Title IX. But again, no one thinks that's a legislative rule, even though this department has taken a definitive position. Going back to the Tennessee example, and 
when I raised Wisconsin, I didn't mean to distinguish in that sense. In the Tennessee example, your position would be that if you decided that the right interpretation of the statute was to permit what was going on in Wisconsin, you would just say, we don't cite the interpretation, we never heard of the interpretation, this is our legal position based on the statute, and Judge Ashley's injunction would have no application. Is that correct? Yeah. Because, and so you actually because don't otherwise you'd be, this injunction would be barring you from what you could say in court. Of course, and it's a little odd. So you're not actually, you think Judge Ashley's injunction didn't do anything? It didn't join you from doing anything? No, it did. It enjoyed from relying on these documents. I mean, citing, I mean, your client says we won't cite it, we won't base anything on it, we won't talk about it, it doesn't exist. Now, here's our legal position. But you're right in a sense, Your Honor, in that we don't understand these documents to establish legal rights and obligations. And so to the extent that the injunction doesn't, so you're right. I get it. It takes you back as to why are you fighting so hard on your side and why are the other folks fighting so hard on their side? And Your Honor, to answer that question, again, the Department and other agencies routinely issue documents like this. And there's an institutional interest here, Your Honor. It can be the case that the states disagree with the interpretation of the document, right? That's well established. It can't be that just because an entity disagrees, right, with a document, it means that it's necessarily a legislative rule. It doesn't mean that that establishes legal obligations and rights. But it also can't be that anything that interprets a statute is an interpretive rule. As Judge Nalbandian said, you know, in Chevron itself, like a stationary source was an interpretation of the Clean Air Act, right? So, I mean, that was a legislative rule. You know, I would point to this court, to Parsons again, right? Just because you've taken a legal determination, and also the D.C. Circuit's decision in Poet Biorefining is another good example of this, where there the court determined that an interpretation of a provision that had a very specific, this is how you do things if you're a regulated entity, that was final agency action, but not a legislative rule, because it still merely reflected the interpretation of the statute. Okay. More questions? We would ask that the injunction be vacated. Thank you. Thank you both for your arguments. They were helpful and enlightening. And the court may, the clerk may adjourn court. This honorable court is now adjourned.